I know that we've got all sorts of people in this room right now, and just know we're super glad you're here, and you are part of this Advent series. Advent means arrival. We're talking about the arrival of Jesus, the first arrival of Jesus, his first coming while we sit here in this space, December, whatever this is, 19th of 2021, waiting for the date, the actual date when Jesus comes back. Again, we sit in this space, this Advent Space. Anthony Hernandez taught a few weeks ago, and he had some good imagery for what Advent is. Here's kind of my best take at it. Uh, It's sort of like uh, photos on an iPhone. Christmas is the photo. Like I'm starting to get Christmas cards from people. They're beautiful. It's like people at their best, smiling. Kids are behaving. There's, you know, my kids always have stuff on their mouth. They just look gross all the time. But a Christmas photo, like we clean it up. Advent is like the live photo. You hold down on the iPhone, and you actually see what happened before and after the picture. Like, Advent is the space around the moment. And that's what we're living into, this space around the moment. Christmas is this wonderful thing, the birth of Jesus, which is now represented with trees and lights and gifts and family and eggnog and all this. But Advent, if we're going to be as this space around that includes all this sort of good, bad, beautiful, smiles, Tears. We live in this live photo, this space around Christmas. And that's kind of what the message is going to be about today. Because Jesus has been born. Jesus is now probably two years old or so, close to two years old. So the Christmas story has moved on now. And now as we read Matthew, the Jewish man writing to his Jewish friends, brothers and sisters, he's talking about, all right, the king has arrived. The Messiah is here. Hark, the herald angels sing. It has happened. He's arrived. Now we're in this Advent live photo season. What's it really going to be like in the kingdom of God? And here's what kind of I, as I first wrote this, I wrote this a couple months ago as I was writing titles. I just called this the enemies of God. I think more likely this is what I think this is about. Advent reminds us that our faith is lived in this in-between kingdom. This in-between first advent and second advent. We live our faith out in this in-between kingdom, which is beautiful, and it provides all these new sorts of tensions we've got to live in as followers of Jesus. So advent reminds us that we, our faith is lived in this in-between kingdom. So we're going to walk through this story, and I'm going to actually kind of do a case study on each of the characters as sort of the message. we got Joseph in here. we got this guy Herod, and we got this guy from Nazareth, a carpenter's son. Jesus, what do we learn as we press into this part of Matthew in this Advent season? So I want to bow our heads and ask God to meet us here in this moment. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we love good pictures that represent great moments. A lot of us love Christmas. God, we all live in this Advent season, this space, this sort of before and after the picture where not everything's buttoned up, not everything's as it should be. And yet, there's real hope, there's a real Messiah, there's a real King Jesus who has really come. So there is good news in this season. And yet the ground we walk on is the ground of the in-between, the in-between space that we find ourselves. So God, as we dive into this Matthew message, this sort of last of the Advent before we come to Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, God, meet us again through your word, by your spirit. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So again, like I said, Advent reminds us that we live in this in-between 
season, this in-between kingdom. In Redemption Church, if you've been a part, so Jack said he's been a part of Redemption for 20 years. The cook's been a part for eight years. I've been a part for 10 years. Redemption Church has this thing that we've stolen from other theologians. We call it the already but not yet. The already but not yet. What is the Bible about? It's about the kingdom of God coming down to earth to set up shop to never be taken away. The kingdom of God coming down to earth. The Lord's prayer, Jesus' most basic prayer. Hey, how do we pray, Jesus? Here's how you pray. Our Father in heaven, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what the whole Bible is about. The kingdom of God coming, and it has come, and it's already here. But here's the reality. It's not fully here yet. Like the lion hasn't roared for the final time. That song that uh, Brittany just sang is my favorite, the lion in there. The lion roars. We are waiting for the day for the second advent where it's not going to be a lamb, it's going to be a lion. It's not going to be a baby, it's going to be a king. It's not going to be come to make peace, it's come to make war with all enemies of God once and for all. And we live in the already, it's here. The kingdom is really here. Some of you experienced it. Some of you are tasting it right now. If your faith is in Jesus, the kingdom is here. And yet it's not fully here yet. So how do most people sort of think about the end times, how it's all going to go down? I don't want to get all goofy and get charts out, and you can talk to Chandler after that. He's an expert in all things <laughs> charts and rapture and all that. But here's kind of my breakdown of this. Some people have just never thought about it. Like this is, if you're not a believer, you're kind of just focused on the here and now. Some of you have just not thought about the kingdom, the future kingdom much at all. That was my life until I was 18 and I became a Christian. Some of us just don't think about it. Some of us, and this is sort of a Christian uh, issue, some of us think so much about the future kingdom that we forget that the kingdom has come here and now. And when Jesus the king showed up on earth the first time, the kingdom has arrived. And we're so busy thinking about the future rapture and Antichrist, and how Putin's involved with this, and whatever else is going down for the end of days that we're missing out on the kingdom right here and now before us. Here's what I want for redemption, and it's that already, not yet. I want us to grow in a sense of the kingdom is already here, and there's very real not yet realities that are going to come that are going to make life far better than we have now, but that doesn't neglect the fact that the kingdom is here now. Now, what about our Jewish friends, especially in this day and age? How did they think about the timeline of history? They were sort of unique. In Eastern thought, sort of time is sort of this cyclical, never really goes anywhere. It's sort of on repeat. You just kind of keep circling the drain until whatever version of Nirvana happens to you. And then the Jewish people show up, and they actually have this timeline where there was a beginning, and there's an end. How did they? They basically had two time slots in their mind. They had the old age. In the age to come. The old age was before the Messiah. The age to come is when the Messiah was going to come. When the Spirit of God was going to be poured out generously on all people. They had an old age and a new age. And here's why Jesus creates problems for them. They have no concept for this reality that an old age and a new age can exist sort of simultaneously. Because that's what we're going to walk through in this story. Is Jesus really comes. He brings the kingdom. The old age is starting to pass away. The new age has come, but there is overlap. Like my quiet times are through Isaiah in this season, and I'm just reading a section where it's saying the lion will no longer lay down, it will lay down with the sheep. Men will live to be 
deep into their, it's all this description of a life that is not currently existing in their reality. There's a better life to be lived. And they had this picture like, once the Messiah comes, boom, that breaks, old age gone, new age is here. And Jesus just messes that all up. He's like, the old age is gone, but it's still around. And the new age has come, but it's not fully here. The already, but not yet. So as we walk through this, I want to just kind of give a quick, like, what is God doing in Matthew 2 here? It's like abundantly clear by the Lord, through the Spirit, through the pen of Matthew. So my youngest son, we just walked to Chompies yesterday, and his favorite thing in restaurants is his play, I Spy. I spy with my little eye. And he just stares exactly at what he spies. I spy with my little eye something blue. Yep, my shirt, yeah! <laughs> and with Matthew, it's sort of like, I spy with my little eye. What is Matthew talking about? Matthew is so clear. The whole chapter two is this. Jesus starts in Bethlehem. Starts in Israel. You got a good life there. The Son of God is born. The people of God is born. Through certain circumstances, he has to escape. And now he's in Egypt. Now we're in Egypt. And then Egypt, stuff is going to rhyme. There's going to be bloodshed as they leave Egypt, as he leaves Egypt. And now they leave Egypt. And they're going to the promised land. Judah, I want to be back in Israel. And yet they have got to take a diversion. And they land in Nazareth. Matthew was like, just so you know, I spy with my little eye. The story of Jesus is the final fulfillment of the story of Israel. I'm not writing a new story. I'm finishing the story I've already started. So just so we know, Matthew is about Jesus being the fulfillment of the Jewish story, the narrative, the people of God who were in, uh, in Israel, and then they had to go off to Egypt, and then they're enslaved, and they get out through bloodshed, through Pharaoh. And now Jesus' story is here, and he's like, I was born in Bethlehem. I got taken off into Egypt. It wasn't what we wanted. Blood was shed. Now I'm out. Now I'm here. Matthew's like, I spy with my little eye the Jewish story. And Jesus is the fulfillment of the Jewish story. What else do I see in here? Just let's look at a few verses. This is sort of like, even if you're not a great Bible reader, which is a lot of us, it's hard to kind of dive into this book. But go to verse uh, 15 with me. This is sort of the refrain. This is the chorus of the song being sung in this section. Verse 15. And they remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. It turns out to be Hosea. This was to fulfill, if you go down even more, go to verse 17. This was fulfilled. This was fulfilled, what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Go down to verse 23. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. Matthew's also saying, just so you know, there's one author in this story we call life. And God is writing the story, and it will be fulfilled exactly like he wants it to be. He is in control 100%. But then the other thing I see in here is the life in the kingdom of God. What's it going to be like in this already, not yet? It's sort of like life is a lot of little, small, mundane moments added up over time. We have a baby born. We have a guy that gets this crazy dream. And what's he do? He rises. He goes on a journey. 
He does this thing. The kingdom of God is not going to be miraculous sign after miraculous sign after miraculous sign. It's going to be the people of God doing very ordinary, simple things. But as we look at this, Matthew's saying, I spy with my little eye, Jewish friends, neighbors. One of the neighbors on our street is a Jewish person, and I want to invite them to church so bad, and I'm like praying through the courage to invite them. I have what your people were looking for. I didn't find him. He found me, and he will find you too. He is the picture of Israel. He is the fulfillment of Israel. He is here. The kingdom is here. Amen? That's good news. And now as we walk through this, we get to look at a few characters in this story. We get to learn from each of them. So here's the first one. This guy, Joseph, who I just love. He's just, he's like the plumber at the church. He's just the faithful guy, like, doing his job. Doesn't get a lot of accolades. He's not going to be talked about in any Grammy Awards, but he is there in the background doing what should be done. So what do we learn? What does Joseph teach us about this in-between kingdom? Let's just go look at his section of this story. Go to verse 13. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Verse 14. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. What does Joseph do here? Like what's his way to get written into the story what does he he just obeys let's go to verse 19 21 just see like this is not a fluke go to verse 19 but when herod died behold another angel and this guy's just dealing with crazy sleeping patterns just angels show up angels show up appeared in a dream to to in joseph in egypt and he says this rise take the child and his mother and go to the land of israel for those who sought the child's life are dead all right joseph what's your response verse 21 he rose he took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. Joseph simply obeys. Like, I think oftentimes we get lost in sort of our thoughts and our feelings and what we think about stuff. We forget, like, at the core of following Jesus is doing what he says. That's it. Like, so simple. Jo- the angel says, do this, this this, this. Next verse. And Joseph did this, 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 period. And now Joseph's out of the story. It's just a beautiful picture of the simplicity of obedience of Jesus. Not easy. I get it. I struggle all the time. But just what we're after as followers of Jesus, we want to obey. I want to please my father through my obedience. Now, as I think about our church, this specific church, but just sort of our vein of churches, like what keeps us from making obedience more prominent, more of a priority? Because I I think we struggle with it in our camps for certain reasons. Here's a few things. John Crawford taught a few weeks ago, but he said this, and I see it for sure. We have a fear of legalism. Nobody wants to be the legalist guy or girl. Like in your RC, think about... What's the person I want to be? I want to be the guy that kind of talks too much. Or I want to be the girl that says crazy stuff. I don't want to be the legalist. Nobody wants to be the legalist. Like we live in this day and age where you do you. 
All our casino billboards, you do you, you do you, you do you. The legalist says, no, you do this. And nobody wants to be that person. But I think there's also a very real fear, and this is a fear I have, and this is kind of where I fall off the the cart, is we don't want to stomp out the gospel, which says Jesus' finished work is my only hope and confidence in this life and in the life to come. Why do I get to see God face to face one day? Why do I get eternity with Jesus? Why am I secure in my relationship with God? Because of Jesus' finished work of obedience, period. And the more we talk about, well, my obedience, it starts, it can kind of squeeze out, well, are you missing out on the gospel? Like you're getting a little squishy with the gospel. And I'll just say, Jesus talks about obedience more than anyone else. And Jesus talks about his gospel more than anyone else. So somehow he thinks both of those can coexist. You can be fully confident in your relationship with Jesus and the Father based off the finished work of the cross and the resurrection. And you can be fully committed to being obedient in the same thing. They're not mutually exclusive. They go together. One is the foundation. One is the path we walk. But we fear stomping out the gospel. Here's another thing, and I just see this in my life. I see it a lot in younger folks. We fear missing out on a good life. Obedience doesn't sound fun. It just doesn't. Like the better life, the life over there outside of whatever obedience calls me to sounds just a little bit more enjoyable to me. I don't, as a dad, like obedience requires me to. Aubrey said something that convicted me yesterday. I didn't tell her, but she was talking about Ozzy. <laughs> don't tell her. Ozzy's in his room playing with Rome, and they're doing the imagination thing. Ozzy just turned four, and she's like, gosh, four-year-olds just live in that imagination world. It's like where they do their best work. It's just how God has wired them. And I'm like, I haven't done that imagination thing with him in a minute. I should go do it. I'm like, yeah, I don't want to. There's an obedience I could have taken. I chose the better life is sitting on the couch watching Jackson State football right now, I think. We're all in the same boat. They're, Obedience and good. Obedience, what's uh, good seems better than obedience. Jesus wants to say, no, be obedient. And here's something I just see more and more, and I, I don't know when I'm going to stop doing, but the, just the younger people. And if you're like, is that me? You can ask me afterwards. But younger people, like, my feelings aren't into it. Like, the stars have to align completely. For me to step forward because I just, you know, my mind's got to be into it. My heart's got to be into it. My feet have to be going in that direction. Everything, the weather has to be good. I just, and then, then, Eli, come on. He's a counselor of young people. He gets this. And then once it's all like perfectly lined up, just so you know, that is a new concept. My grandpa would not have a category for how we think about life. What do you mean how you feel? Get your butt up and go to work. What do you mean what do you think? What do you, I'm just not feeling. What does feeling it mean? I have no, I've never heard that word before. Grandpa, let me explain. Be obedient. Tom Schrader planted Redemption Church years ago. He says what you know trumps what you feel. And there's a danger where we push our feelings off. But there's also a danger where the feelings are driving the cart of our life in an unhealthy way. I don't know how Joseph felt about all the things he was being called to do, but it just says he did it. Rise, get up, get going, and I want you to go and live in Nazareth. Done. 
Our feelings aren't always going to line up. What areas of obedience is God calling for you right now in this season? Like, have you heard his voice recently tell you this, this, this? Just so I try to read the Bible every morning and just kind of, and most of it's like good, but not nothing life shattering. It's just like, I just want to stay close. Like the times where I'm like kind of foggy and not really connecting with the Lord, a lot of times I'll ask this, what are you asking me to do? And a lot of times the Spirit's like, this, do this, do this. Like, have you had this, do this moment, this, this, sell this, buy this, move here, interact with this person. Like, what is God calling you to in terms of obedience? Get up and do it. Joseph rose, he took his family, he fled, and then he stayed. Why? Because the angel said, rise, take your family, run, and stay. What is God calling you to do right now? You will fail. Just, that's just how life works. I was listening to this podcast about motivating your workforce. It was very, talking about the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. And the motivation was down. It was during the Great Depression. Like, how do we get these people to work harder? Because you fall off and you die. Well, there's a big problem there. So the owner's like, I'm going to pause work for it. And he spent like $300,000 creating this net underneath. And he raised the bar of what he wanted out of his people. But he also had this safety net. And then people just, like the first week they said 14 people fell down. It was like, oh, look at Joe. And then they got back to work. Like Christianity gives us this, the greatest safety net ever. The safety net of grace. Like none of us are going to fall that far. We're going to step out in what we think is trying to be obedience, and we're going to fall. We're going to fail with our spouse, with our kids, in our work, with our neighbors. We're going to fall, and we're going to land on grace. Joseph, get up, go, and he did it. I wrote this for me, and I'll share it with you, but what are four words of obedience God has for you this season? Joseph says, rise, flee, get your family, stay. Like, what is God telling you in this season? And I would just encourage you, obedience is a beautiful, beautiful thing in this kingdom of God. What's the next thing we see? We see this guy, Herod, now. What does Herod teach us about this in-between kingdom? Go to verse 16. This is where the story gets a little darker, quite a bit darker. Verse 16 says this, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping, loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. What is happening here? Herod. Orders the people to be killed, any boys two years and younger, in Bethlehem. And then it says, this was to fill this prophecy about Rachel weeping. So you saw the prophecies out of the book of Jeremiah. It's talking directly in the moment about what's happening with Babylon. Babylon is taking away Jewish boys and girls, and they're being killed. And Rachel is sort of seen as the mother of Israel. She's uh, Jacob's favorite. Jacob is Israel's favorite wife. She's sort of the mother of Israel. And the mother of Israel is crying as she's watching her sons and daughters be killed in this passage in Jeremiah. But then Matthew here says, and this was also to fulfill what's happening here. We're in Bethlehem, little town of Bethlehem. Herod, 
a pagan is killing Jewish boys once again. Who is this Herod guy? He's this character that's here for a season, and then he's out of the Bible. As far as history goes, he's one of the most written about people in history. As far as leaders go, you can find tons of stuff about him. Just a few things. He's such a ruthless man, just so you know, that this particular happening, the slaughtering of baby boys in Bethlehem, is not recorded anywhere else outside of Scripture, which some people take to say, see, told you, this thing's false. No, it's more like he's got a lot worse things on his plate that people can point to to write his life story. It's like we don't tell the stories about Hitler being a turd at the restaurant. Why? Because there's a lot more to write about the guy. Herod did far more worse things than this killing of a few Jewish babies. So it doesn't even land on the radar of public historians, which is just sad, disgusting, but part of being in the already not yet kingdom that this is still a reality. He was married to 10 women. His family was a mess, obviously. He killed three of his sons one time out of paranoia. You got 10 women, you got all these future princes coming up. One time he just, he's a very paranoid guy, killed three of them just to say, just so you know, I'm still boss. This is the worst part of, I, that I read about him. He had noble Jewish leaders killed, first arrested. He's, his health is declining. He knows the Jewish people despise him. He's the worst. I'm going to arrest all these noble leaders, the Jack de Bartolos, all these people that are respected by this particular religious community, arrested him as he's on his deathbed, and he made the order, make sure you kill them as I die so that this place is weeping, because I know they're not going to cry for me. And he dies, and all these noble men and women are killed, and there's weeping and tears. Why? Because Herod is king at this time. That's the man that's in this story right now. The king of the Jews is here, and yet the king, Herod, is still around. That's what the already not yet reality of the Christian faith is. The king is here, and so is Herod. And what do we see in Herod? The in-between kingdom we live in is still a place of tears. Advent is still a time for tears. Christmas is a joyful time. Joyful, joyful, Joy to the world, yes, and there is weeping and crying still because we live in this in-between season. Like just, I'm trying to picture Bethlehem. Like one of the most beautiful pictures God gives me of just kind of fullness of life is sisters that are pregnant at the same time together. So I have two sisters, my wife has a sister, and they've all had babies at the same time. They've all been pregnant. Brittany, who sings up here, was pregnant at the same time as Aubrey. They're basically sisters. I love like two women going through this wonderful thing that I'll never get, and they're giving life and creating life. That's going on in Bethlehem. All those women that walked the streets with Mary that had a son are now crying and burying their baby boy who's not much older or younger than baby Jesus. In the middle of the Christmas story, where does that make it out in any of these Christmas movies we watch? That's, there will be tears until the kingdom is fully here. Yeah. And I think Matthew's sort of saying, I think he writes it because it really happened, but I also think 
He's trying to tell the Jewish people, just so you know, that old age, new age thing, it's more like this. The old age has more influence on this new age than you ever expected. There are still going to be tears. We weep in this season because there's very real pain. Here's the other thing. The in-between kingdom is not controlled by kings like Herod, but by the king. Herod thought he was in control. Psalm 2 says this about Herod and people like Herod. I won't turn there. I'll just read it here. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth, Herod, sets themselves up, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against the Messiah, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. The Lord laughed at Herod. He's laughing at people who think they're the king right now. We take hope in that, in this already not yet as Christians, that he who holds it all laughs at people who think they have control over what's actually happening. You're trying to kill my anointed. He'll be over here, and then you'll be dead, and I'll bring him back right to where I wanted him the whole time. Don't you fret. It's like my kids playing. My kids love playing Nerf Wars with all the neighborhood boys, just Nerf bullets everywhere. It's like I picture God sees the king's the presidents, the senators, the CEOs, the CFOs who think they're in charge and are doing something mighty as a bunch of kids with Nerf guns. Like, what are you doing down there? Elon Musk, what are you doing? All right, you made it to space a few times. Biden, what do, you, do you think you have any control over how this goes down? Josh. You think you really, you're just playing Nerf Wars. Knock it off. That's what the in-between kingdom is. We're a bunch of people playing Nerf Wars that actually hurt people, and God is laughing at those who think they have power. Here's the other thing I see with, just with Herod, and I want to ask the question in this room. This in-between kingdom is a battle of who gets to be king. Why is Herod furious? Some random baby being born in this little Jewish province. Because he's the king of Israel. Every battle in the human heart is this. Who gets to be king? Who gets to be king? It's the question you ask as you become a Christian, either implicitly or explicitly. It's not, do I want to go to heaven one day? Do I really think that God loves me? I just got my haircut from a guy who had a really rough past in religion. He's like, here's my religion. God loves everyone. Which I would say, yes. But here's the other question. Who is the king of your life? Herod, who's the king of your life? Who's the king? Who's the real king? If it's not Jesus, you are not a Christian. Herod said, I don't want anyone else to be king. Fine, you'll be dead. And this other guy will take your place. Who is your king? As our church is growing, we get more and more people that have some sort of church background. But we also have a lot of people that don't know a lot. But here's my is Jesus the king of your life? Have you submitted to the lordship of Jesus? That's the question. And if you haven't, I would just ask you, do it now. The Bible is full of stories of men and women who refuse to bow to the king. And full of pictures of what it's going to be like ultimately for people who refuse to bow here and now. But Jesus is the ultimate king. Have you submitted to him yet? Takes us to our last point, Jesus himself. What does Jesus teach us 
about the in-between kingdom here. Let's read in verse 19. What happens to Herod, it's what happens to all of us. No matter what amount of power or prestige we hold in this life. Verse 19, here is Herod. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he, Jesus, the king, would be called a Nazarene. What's the prophecy being fulfilled here? Matthew 2 is all these sort of prophecies popping up. We had this one out of Hosea, out of Egypt, I called my son, Jeremiah, Rachel's crying for her children, and now this. The prophets have said he would be a Nazarene. Where is that in the Bible? Just so you know, it is nowhere in the Bible. So what is Matthew doing here? The prophets have said he would be a Nazarene, and if you go and search, you will not find a single passage that says, and he will be a Nazarene. The closest you get is to uh, the word root of Jesse, branch of Jesse, talking about tree language with the line of King David. It sort of sounds like Nazarene. So like maybe it's a play on words, like this branch is all, it's word. and I just think the bulk of prophecy about King Jesus sort of has two buckets you could put it in. All things are going to be fixed. The lion is going to lay down with the lamb, and a lot of Isaiah 53 Nobody would have spotted the Messiah because he was despised. He was rejected. Says Jesus was not good looking, which is just interesting. Like, you got two categories. He's going to fix it all, and the kingdom is going to come fully the second advent or this first advent. Just so you know, he is not going to be what any of us expected. He is going to be despised and rejected. He's going to be lonely. He was smitten, he was forsaken. And I think that collective thought had the people thinking, okay, where is a guy like that going to come from? Casa Grande, for sure. <laughs> Sorry, Adam. I can't, I mean, what else other than Casa Grande? Dan's from there too, so. But I think the prophets just knew like, okay, he is going to look like this, be like this. That means he's going to come from a nowhere, backwoods place. Nazareth was that place. He would be called a Nazarene. He is going to be the person none of us look to for any sort of prestige. Like in our day and age, I don't, we, we're not that geographically sort of proud. I mean, some of us maybe, but if you're from East Coast, maybe you are. But like Arizonans are pretty chill. Like, I'm trying to think of the closest equivalent to this. I was in Turkey a couple of years ago, and the Kurdish people, the Kurds, are sort of like this, like, nomadic. You ask Turkish people about them, it's like, ah. What good is going to happen to Turkey, and where is it going to come from? Nobody would say it's going to come from a Kurd. And that's kind of what, it's going to come from someplace you would not expect. It's going to come from Nazarene. He's going to be a hillbilly. He's going to be one of those sorts of people. Now, what do we make of all that? How is the prophecy of God, the story of God, the story of Israel ultimately fulfilled? Because we see we see Joseph provides this obedience. He moves the story along with his obeying what the angel says. 
Herod, even in his sin and his hatred, God uses that in his sovereignty, takes this man's sinful, wicked heart and uses it for good purposes. So the story keeps moving, whether we're obeying or whether we're sinning, God is in control and he's moving the story forward, regardless of what we're doing. But ultimately, what is the story waiting for? How is the story going to be fulfilled? Here's what's required. A God who would say, I will take on the identity of a Nazarene. A deity who would take on flesh. A king who would become a carpenter's son. The greatest being in the universe, the creator of all things, to come down and be called a Nazarene. The kingdom of God, here's what brought it in fully, is the humility of Jesus, period. In Advent, as I'm praying, that's what I want more of, humility. Why? Because Advent only happened because God humbled himself. God allowed himself in the person of Jesus to be humiliated with his identity being identified with Nazareth, but even to the final point of death on a cross, naked, ashamed, in between two thieves. That guy from Nazareth is what this whole world's been waiting for? Yes. How does the story of God move on? It's through the humility of Jesus, period. Like I want to remind us, here's the gospel. The gospel is this. Jesus was humiliated lower than he ever should have been so that we could be elevated higher than any of us would ever deserve. That's the story of Advent, the story of the Nazarene who came to earth for us. Christianity, I listened to a pastor the other day said this, and this hit me hard. Christianity is not some right people telling a bunch of wrong people how to get right, which is a lot of what the world is right now. There's a lot of wrong stuff out there. I've got some right stuff. I'm going to correct you. Christianity is a bunch of humbled people who are talking to a bunch of proud people, telling them where to get life and life to the fullest. And life to the fullest is found with this person, Jesus, who was a Nazarene, somebody we never would have looked for. That's where we find life in the kingdom, in the humility of Jesus and nowhere else. That's all Advent is about. Because the second advent's coming, his humility is not going to be what's on display. We'll be looking at other attributes. But for now, we look at his humility. It might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Amen? Amen. That's who we worship. Let's pray. God, we all sit in this tension of the already, not yet. And we feel the tension points in a variety of ways. We all are crying and weeping for a variety of things. We're all wishing for more, wishing for you to show up, wishing for your kingdom to come more fully in a variety of ways. But yet as your people, as your church, God, we want to be faithful. So God, even in this tension of life not being fully what it will be and should be, make us more obedient this season. You speak and we listen. Make us a church of simple, obedient people. And God, in this Advent season, I pray that we would see the humility of Jesus in a fresh way. That we have no earthly comparison that even comes close to how low Jesus had to come to be close to us. So God, I pray that we would see him, the one who was a Nazarene, in a fresh way as we worship today and the rest of this week as we look ahead to Christmas, that we worship the King, 
who came to earth on our behalf and lived a humble life, a life that none of us could ever aspire to or match up to, but yet we all benefit from by faith now. Lord, we love you so much. In Jesus' name I pray.